0: So let me start with, uh, we're going to look in the book of Philippians tonight, <coughs> one particular passage. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, and I wanted you to think of, you know, when, when Christians, we think of Christian virtues. Things that, characteristics that we... we Think of Christ, when we think of Christians, we think, oh, they need to have these characteristics, or they have these characteristics. So I want you to think about, just quickly in your head, three of them. If you want to write it down, that might be, if you're like me, don't have a great memory, then write it down. Uh, three virtues that you think Christians should have. Maybe it's the top three virtues for you. So think about that, and um, we'll come back to it later on, and uh, we'll, we'll see if, uh, how it ties in with what we're going to talk about tonight. It's so only 15 verses, but boy, is it packed with teaching. And so we're going to go on a journey tonight, and if you knew the destination... You may not want to go on the journey. Because he takes us, and even the roads are rough as we go, but when we, when we get to the final section of the, of the journey, it's like, really? You're calling us to live and, and be like that? Oh, my goodness. That sounds really difficult. Particularly when the world in which we live, the culture and the environment in which we live is constantly pushing us in a completely opposite direction than Paul is telling us where to go tonight. So, I hope you will stay with me on this journey. I have certainly found it to be personally challenging (coughs) and also enjoyable and stimulating at the same time. But we do have to unpack some pretty significant scripture. Philippians is a church that Paul really loved. You can tell from the way he writes the letter that he loves the church of Philippi. It's possible that he is near the end of his life. We're not quite sure. Is he in Rome? Is he in Ephesus? In, but he's certainly in prison. But he's writing uh, based upon his visit to them and also the messages that have come through over several years. And so in the first part of uh, Philippians chapter 1 we see him expressing that love for that he has for them we see him talking about his own experiences of being in prison and he encourages them in the progress that they've made i think paul thinks that this church has been doing quite well but he has obviously as he always does some things to tell us and to help them move on and go deeper with the lord so we're going to start tonight uh, in these fifteen verses. They're going to begin in chapter one, verse twenty-seven. So if you turn to that, please, Philippians chapter one, verse twenty-seven. I'm going to. am re- reading from the New International Version. I did study also in the um, ESV as well. Um, it's fairly similar, uh, so I'm going to stick to my to the NIV but uh, i don't think you'll have too much difference uh, in your text the first half of the let's have the first half of the first verse of, of chapter 27 of the 20, chapter verse 27 so let's read whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ now Paul tends to use these kind of compressed statements in, in all of his letters. And he'll use words like live the gospel or he'll talk about walking, that we walk in this particular way. But in this particular verse, he, sa- he says that we are to conduct ourselves. And actually the word he uses is the word from which we get is polis. And we get the word politics We get, maybe it's even police, I don't know, I was thinking about that, but I never got to check it up. But there's a number of words in the English language that come from that root. And it's about being a citizen. And so what Paul is saying is, be a good citizen, worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think Paul was a great master at knowing his his people. He knew their context. He knew the world in which they lived. And in that world of Roman occupation, but Greek culture, um, citizenship was a really big deal. It had been hard won uh, in battles over many, many years. And so to be a citizen, a true citizen uh, in, in the empire, was to have all kinds of rights and privileges and also, though, realization that there were duties and responsibilities. And so Paul is calling them to be good citizens. Cooperating with each other is the other, is the other idea, that they, the expectation, that we will cooperate with each other to make things work in, this, in, in our world. And so he uses that terminology, So what is he saying? He's saying that we obviously need to be good citizens of the kingdom of God, which we have entered into. So that's clearly part of it. But also, because of the word and the way it's used, it also means that a much broader sense, that we're to be citizens in all dimensions of our lives. So not just God's kingdom but in the world in which he has placed us to live and and be his ambassadors. So that means, as Christians, when we live in this world, with all of the struggles and challenges, and we've certainly had plenty of those in recent times, and what what Paul is saying is we can't withdraw, we must be active, engaged citizens. We can't withdraw, we can't thumb our nose at the, the, society, the society in which we live, and we can't tear it down. We are to engage fully as citizens in a society, in a manner that Jesus would be proud of. Now, we like to say that the gospel is inspired, uh, has power. It's, after all, the words of the gospel are spirit-breathed to us through the writers. But what we see here is that the gospel becomes supercharged when it's lived. When we live the gospel, when we live a gospel that is worthy of Jesus Christ, then it supercharges it. It confirms it. It brings it to life. And guess what happens? People are drawn to it. Some are repelled, of course. As the other side, there's always those who repelled, but it will also draw those for whom this is the message that they need. And so that's the first jolt, if you like, to any idea of comfortable Christianity. It's that we're called to live in all dimensions of our lives, worthy of the gospel. And so in this season of Lent, we, it's good to ask ourselves, Does my life match what I believe? I believe a lot of things in the Bible. But is my life matching that? Am I living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a good question to ask ourselves uh, in this season. So that's the first point that Paul wants to make. Live the gospel. Let's go on. Second half of verse 27. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So, Paul has made his statement, live the gospel, And then he starts to unpack what does that actually mean in practice. Now, in Paul's writings, there are many things that he says about the gospel. But he has some specific things to say here that I think are really important for us in these days and in the days that I think are going to come upon us as Christians living in the society. It tells you again that there is no such thing as a comfortable Christianity. In fact, the words he uses are words of battle, is battle language. We're to stand firm. We're to struggle. And it's interesting that what he says here, another little word he uses in here, he says, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit. And striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He doesn't just say that we're struggling for the gospel. I think there's a real case to be made by those who say we need to defend the gospel. We need to make sure that the truth is clearly communicated. And people don't have the wrong idea. So we do need to do apologetics. But I don't think that's the primary focus of what he's saying here. Because we're striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, that faith is something that we didn't earn. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says what? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So that faith which God has brought into existence, it didn't exist in us. God birthed it within us, and it now exists within us. But it's not a given that that faith is going to grow. It's there. And so we, it needs to be grown, and that process of growth, unfortunately, perhaps, is that it has to be grown in the face of opposition. Philippians were facing opposition. As we read on, chapter 3, you get the sense, a real clear idea that those who were opposing the church in Philippi were those who wanted to draw them back into the pra- beliefs and practices of the Jewish view. And so they were having to stand against that. But, of course, we also have opposition. We don't have that kind of opposition but we do have a lot of opposition there are many things we could say I, I was thinking of just a few we have direct opposition from people who say and, and of course when I, before I came to Christ I used to believe this as well that Christianity was just a crutch that people could lean on but really there is no God and there is no need to have a God we can live our lives on our own Sin is really not a big deal. Yeah, we're all, we all have stuff that go, we do that's not kind of great, but most of us are not really bad people. And then there are those who say there are many paths to God. And these are some of the pressures and things that are said to us, said to us often by people who are close to us, by family, by friends. So that's direct pressure, but there's also indirect pressure you know richard it 's really okay to be spiritual but not be so absolute in the beliefs that you have there 's this subtle message that we get from every media and of course, it used to be just the radio and the TV that we would get this message of of you focusing on us we your needs and the things that we need to have to make us happy and Now, of course, we have television. And we have so much media. Everything you go to, whether it's Facebook, any, any web page now that you go to, um, you're getting those messages, those indirect messages saying, You're really important. You need to take care of yourself. You need this BMW. <laughs> <laughs> Not on this mountain, we do, anyway. <laughs> so we're being assaulted from all, all sides. And so Paul is calling us to stand firm in one spirit and strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. So he's not telling us to go out and attack the opposition. Not in this passage. He's talking about we need to defend ourselves. We need to create... Barriers around ourselves, so that inside we can grow not i don 't mean real barriers like walls or go off and live in a, in, in the middle of nowhere, I mean we 've got to build barriers around our minds and hearts so that we can resist those pressures that want us to pull us in another direction and Paul says that this struggle, and we know the struggle there 's nothing new in what I've said so far. We all know about the struggle, the the war that's going on for our soul. But notice that Paul says, we struggle together. We have to do it together. And we will only survive if we stand and grow together. I think that is something that is a real struggle in our society here. I was thinking I've worked, I've been in many countries, but we've worked in over 20 countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And I think if we had a list, uh, America would be on the top of the list of those who want to do it alone alone. I think it comes back to the history of the country, how the, the challenge it was to create a nation. But it's led us to a, a kind of, I can do it. I can do this Christian stuff on my own. The reality, and Paul says here, is that we need to struggle together because the enemy is powerful. And that, I think, gives us a reason why Jesus created the church in the first place. The body of believers. Why does, and why does the New Testament speak so much about one another? Love one another, which is about a third of the one another's in the New Testament. There are many other one another's. Confess your sins one to another. Confronting one another. There's all kinds of one another's in the New Testament. Throughout the letters that confirm this idea That we can only grow in our faith, the faith that's been deposited in us by the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection. That that can only grow if we struggle together. So, we're called to live the gospel, we're called to engage with the enemy, and we're called to operate as a team. And not to be frightened. We could talk about that. Let's go on. Verse twenty nine. For find it here. Here we go. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here that I still have so God has, Christ has given us a gift he's given us the gift of faith we talked about that earlier but then he talks about a second gift the gift of suffering I wonder if I could say no to that one <laughs> I don't think so because they're really one gift as it was true for well, Jesus, it is true for us that if we have faith, we will suffer. Some will suffer more than others, but we can guarantee that if we are trying to grow in that faith, we will suffer in some way. We may not be put in prison, as many Christians have, we may not be beheaded, as Christians in Iraq have been, or Syria but we will suffer. In fact, Paul actually in a couple of passages in Colossians and later on in Philippians, actually kind of takes that idea of suffering, and we could have a whole message on on just the idea of suffering, that he takes it on himself and he embraces the suffering as he embraces his faith. For example, uh, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any possible means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So suffering is a gift. Why is it a gift? Well, it's a gift because it helps us in our growing of our faith. The amazing thing is that when you go to places where suffering is the greatest, yes, there are always some who fall away. But for the majority of people, and certainly people we've met, their faith is, is created so much more strongly because of the suffering that they've undertaken. So we should not look at suffering and we should not look at the opposition that gives rise to that suffering as something to be scared of, fearful about, to try to run away from. But to actually recognize that it actually has value for us in our walk with the Lord. So we have this call to live the gospel. We have the reality that we're in a battle the enemy who wants to destroy our faith and we're aware that we cannot survive alone. Now Paul digs into what it means to struggle together. And we move into now chapter 2 of Philippians, which is even though there's a chapter break, it really is one pretty continuous piece of, of a message from Paul. A topic, if you like. So let's read the first two verses of chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, I was thinking about that. Paul is telling us to think alike and love alike. That's what it really boils down to. Think alike and love alike. And at first blush, that's kind of a horrible idea, isn't it? You don't want to be like me, really? That weird accent and all my other British habits. We don't want to be like each other. So, what is he saying? In order to understand it, when Paul says we need to think alike and love alike, we need to go back to the context. The context is that we're under attack. And many of the attacks, and I would say most of the attacks that come our way, are very subtle. And they're not very direct and they come at us, and before we know it, we've got, oh, i just fallen into a hole. Now we have to do the hard work of digging out. Because the enemy is so um, clever in how he acts. In fact, did I? Oh, yeah, that's later on. So, we we need... To be able to sit down and help each other, first become aware of really what these attacks are. These, they're like scams. You, you, you're kind of, they come our way. You know these scams and all these things that come on the internet. They come through your phones, and they're very deceptive. And so, and when you mm. listen to the message on the answering machine and you go, "Wow." Maybe I need to make that call. It sounds as if it's really serious or important. So you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out what's really going on here. And then figure out how you're going to respond, which is most of the time to delete the message. But that's what it's like in the Christian life. We have to figure it out. And we need to be able to do that together. We need to have one mind about it. We need to sit down and talk about what are the challenges we face in 2021, here, living in this part of the world. Help each other. And have one mind about those things that are coming against us. Now that's much more interesting to me, that we can figure out, because I can't figure it all out on my own. I can't see all of the subtle ways in which the enemy comes after me, but together, we can do that. We need to have common strategies for how to combat the deceptions of the enemy. We need to remember that the enemy is clever and deceptive. So, unity is essential. If we don't have unity, we will fail. If we have no unity, we don't have any witness. And then we have nothing to say to the world. Is unity possible, though? Many of us have been in churches that have split and people have fought over particular things. I mean, we know that unity is not easy. And it is hard. But there are resources. In fact, they're right there, or some of, a lot of them are, in the first part of the, first, ver, the verse, first verse that we read. If you have any encouragement. And by the way, the if. It doesn't mean to say, well, you may or you may not. That's not the sense in which Paul is saying it, expecting you to say, well, of course we have encouragement. So really, the if is since then we have encouragement. Since then we have comfort. Since we have a shared spirit, the Holy Spirit residing in us. And since we have tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being of one mind and having the same love that's the resources, God has given us the resources he has encouraged us, we have encouragement we have comfort and we have his Holy Spirit and not only that, and the focus is on that which comes from Christ but we also have it from each other, right? So, we have a lot of resources that can help us to be in unity, to come together and face the threats that exist to our faith. So, we're called to live the gospel. To live it is a struggle, but we can overcome the opposition if we struggle together in unity. But unity is not natural. But we can learn to be unified. And that takes us to what Paul wants to tell us in verses 3 on. So let's read. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Whoa, this was the really tough part for me in, in this passage. So, if we are out for ourselves, if we're just promoting our own cause, if we're seeking our own advantage, then unity is absolutely impossible. And I'm sure you've all been in situations where, in a group, where someone is so self-oriented, and it just is so hard to get anything done. And that's so true. The idea, though, of valuing others above yourselves is a very misunderstood concept. Uh, I've heard teaching and I've read stuff that, that talks about when we say that we should value others above ourselves, that we should have a low opinion of ourselves, that we are nothing. In old language, it would be, I am just a worm, a worm for Jesus. It doesn't sound good, does it? uh, That's completely not what is being said here. And I think that C.S. Lewis um, really nailed it. First of all, he, in, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which I really recommend, it is such a fun but really revealing book. It's the senior devil coaching the junior devil how to get inside these Christians and just distract them and disturb them and destroy their faith. And so he's talking about humility, this trait that, that Christians have or are supposed to have. And so the senior devil says to the junior devil, you must therefore conceal from the patient, that's us, we're the patient, the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his talents and character. So actually, if we think lowly of ourselves, if we just think we're nothing, that's exactly where the enemy wants us to be. Because if we keep focusing on the fact, I'm just a nobody, I can't do anything, Jesus can't use me, that's another way of focusing on ourselves. Lewis then said this in other writings. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, It's thinking of yourself less. See the difference? Such a massive difference those words switched around. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And in this passage, if we're not thinking of ourselves less, what are we supposed to be thinking about? And Paul says it's the interests of others. If we focus on the other person and their needs then our own self becomes we don't have to worry about it we don't have to work at trying to make myself humble we focus on others and that will bring us into humility Uh, in 2nd Corinthians Paul says you know that those who are considered rulers rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Same idea. If you want to be big in the kingdom, God's kingdom, not in this kingdom, but in God's kingdom, if you want to be big, you need to be a servant. You need to function as a servant, which is what does a servant do? Serves others. We have a great picture of that in our English culture, of course, the butler, the British butler who attends to all of the needs of the family, never complains, probably complains on his own, but anyway. Um, So biblical humility is... I, I, I was putting humility and self sacrifice because they're really but they're really one thing. Biblical humility is is has to include self sacrifice in it for it to be biblical humility. See, so I can be I can be have humility in a meeting and be nice and 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 want others to speak. I can be that's 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 good. That's part of it. And we see that. We see that in in some of the great leaders, and I've had some good leaders, who there's a humility. But biblical humility is very much turns it, goes deeper really, drives the whole thing deeper and says, actually, biblical humility is really self-sacrifice. It is really setting aside your rights and privileges for the sake of others. I think this is perhaps, of all the things that he's said in this passage, that's the hardest of all for us to really do. Because we are wired for self-care. We're wired to focus on our own needs. We're constantly, and that's constantly reinforced by messages from our culture. In fact, I hardly, I don't think I know of one leader... In Africa, in the many countries that I've been in or know of, where the leader, hasn't, bec- when he comes into power, hasn't become a billionaire or multimillionaire. That doesn't sound like service to me. And we see it here in politics. We see it here in corporations. In our general culture, we see similar things. Augustine... Which you've heard of Pastor Brandon, have spoken of him many times. He identified the three most important virtues. So start thinking about your virtues that you came up with. He said that the three most important virtues for a Christian is humility, humility, humility. So if you didn't get humility, 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 then fail, fail. But it's not just. You know, if we look at the basis of this country, I was—I I read a, quite a, an article by uh, a man by the name of David Bob. He was pre, is the president, president of the Bill of Rights Institute. So this is a group that really gets into the the makings of this country back to its early days. And this is what he said: Early Americans knew that for their enterprise to become great, humility would be necessary. So you always hear the message, America is, a, is the great country. In fact, we actually say, you say, not I don't say, but America is the greatest country in the world. <laughs> but what he says is that for America to become great, humility would be necessary. So he's quoting what the, Ameri- what the early fathers of America believed and, and felt as they were writing the documents that give the foundation for this country. They also knew that of all the virtues of the human heart, humility is the most hard one. Our own age, he feels, is one of, the, one of arrogance. I was thinking, originally as I was studying, I was thinking pride's the opposite of, of humility, but actually, no, it's arrogance. And he says that, and I read it in other, others too. Arrogance obscures the idea that humility is the indispensable virtue for the achievement of greatness. So... Do do we want to make America great again? Then, and I'm not making any puns or anything, I'm actually just taking the words, um, but you know those words, then we need humility. Develop humility, and we will make America great again. Now, humility is something that throughout history has been either appealing to a culture or appalling. Uh, I was one person, an uh, Italian prince back several hundred years ago, Machiavelli. He had a very bad reputation for some things that he did. But he believed that if you, it, the Christian idea of humility was a sure way to fail. And many of his time believed that, that humility was a very cor- corrosive force in society. So humility has not always been regarded as a positive thing. In fact, humility has actually been used to oppress people. Did you know that the early the slave owners in the early where, in the South realized that the African American slaves who came, they they seemed to be comforted by the Bible, by biblical teaching. It calmed them down. They weren't aggressive. So what did they do? They created, and you can actually go and see it, the slave Bible. Have you ever heard of that? It's about 14 books, parts of 14 books of the Bible. It does not, for example, include Exodus. Why would it include Exodus? Well, Exodus is about freedom and liberation. So they just literally did not include it. So... Humility can be abused. So it's a radical, but it's also an exciting idea. It's one little story. uh, There was a monk, Mercurius, lived in a village, uh, and one day a young lady got pregnant. And she was scared of what people would say, so she accused the monk of raping her. And so the village got really mad. They went after the monk... And when they came upon the monk, the monk heard what they said and said, don't worry. Now, he wasn't guilty. Make it very clear. He wasn't guilty. But he said, don't worry. I will take care of her and the child. Some time went on. And, but the pregnancy started to go bad. She was, felt like she was probably going to lose it, the baby. And so she thought, oh, maybe God is cursing me for telling this lie. So he, she told the villagers the truth now the villagers wanted to go to the monk and just praise him and thought he was a wonderful guy guess what the monk did he ran away because he because he was wanted to be humble and he didn't want the praise that he, maybe he felt that it was just going to go to his head i don't know but i thought it was a funny story of of uh, but it's a great story that someone would take on that Responsibility for that, and without any, didn't need to be responsible, but took it on. So I thought that was a great example uh, of someone who is acting in humility. So if we humble ourselves, we can act in unity and overcome opposition, and therefore live the gospel well. And we're not alone, because Jesus has gone before us in the last section of our scripture. Verse 5. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all every name. That of the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wow. So he's our supreme example, right? Jesus. He surrendered his rights in order to to serve, and he enters this life as a as a man. But actually, the English translation really doesn't bring out the true, real, deep significance, because the word "man" is actually the word in Greek "doulos." "Doulos" is the Greek word for slave. So, Jesus didn't just become a man. He came, became a slave, out of his own free will, he came out of his desire to serve humanity. He was fully a man and fully God. We could get into the whole uh, conversation about, so oh, so how did that work out? Did he set aside his omniscience and his omnipresence and all of these god-divine characteristics? Did he do that? I'm not going to get into into all that because the key issue here is that he set aside his rights and privileges in order to serve. And because he did that, he is greatly exalted by God our Father. Back in Jesus' time, um, his, what two of his disciples wanted to, want, really wanted to, to Jesus to give them pride of place when they, when they went to be with him, when uh, Jesus went on his throne. So they wanted to sit on either side of him, on his throne. And Jesus said, you know that those, and this is in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, which is what they wanted to do. And their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. Talking to them and to us. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And there are those words again. So and then actually I was looking, there were some parallels between What we just read, and actually John at the the Last Supper, at the end of the Last Supper, before Jesus goes out to pray and then ultimately arrested, he gets up from the table and he takes off his outer garments. And so in a sense that's like he emptied himself and he takes a towel, wraps it around himself, and then with the water in a basin he washes the feet of his disciples. And that's a parallel to the idea of taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of human beings. So we see that, that even though this is actually, it's, it's really a hymn. That really, commentators really believe that this was a hymn that the church would sing uh, about Jesus. Um, but, in, but actually Jesus did this. And we see that example of him washing the disciples' feet. And then when he finishes, he puts he puts his clothes back on and he comes and sits down at the table and then he says you address me as teacher and lord and rightly so for that is what i am and that is one of the real few places where jesus really comes right out and says you got it right i am the lord in all of my that divinity that is in that word the lord and so you see that picture of of Jesus' demonstration that Jesus didn't just no we didn't say we don't just say this about Jesus we actually see it, and so that's encouraging for us um, because Jesus um, if we want to learn how to be humble read the Gospels just read the stories of Jesus and how he reacted and responded to situations. We see that humility, and we see that self-sacrifice and desire to serve. So in this passage, there are several big ideas. There's live the gospel, engage in the battle, act in unity, all challenging concepts. But for me, the most challenging of all is this idea of humility and self-sacrifice. So did anyone come up with it as a virtue in their list of three? Can you stick your hand up if you did? Nacelle, brilliant. Mike, brilliant. Anybody else? Uh, So Debbie and... (laughs) I've got age age syndrome. Um, So that's great. Four of you came up with it one of you on your list. That's brilliant. So... I think, as I put it all together in my head, I think to myself, so if we think of ourselves less and we focus more on others, we wouldn't want to be in unity. It would just come naturally. So if we focus on, on humility and self-sacrifice, the rest of it starts to become a whole lot easier. Unity, which is a tough thing in our culture, the struggle becomes easier and living the gospel becomes easier so learning to become other centered is some of the hardest work we'll ever do but it will be the most valuable it will be the most useful for our faith and it will be the most re- rewarding and fruitful in the lives in our lives and in the lives of others and it will draw people to the Lord Jesus. So that's my message. I have a prayer. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot uh, application. I'm going to let, let this kind of sit with you and let you figure out so what would humility look like in my situation, in my workplace, in my home, in wherever it might be. Think about that. I hope that you will take that idea of humility and self-sacrifice into your week and just think about it and maybe read some Gospels too to help. So let me close with a prayer. This is a prayer, it's actually a Jesuit prayer but I thought it was very relevant Um, and so I'm going to pray that prayer. Please pray along with me. (coughs) Let's pray. From the desire of being praised... Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being approved, Deliver me, O Jesus. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything, Jesus. Grant me the grace to desire it.